Good afternoon, folks. Welcome to Book Sandwich Dan. I'm Bill Crossland with Friends of the Knox County Library. We are honored today to welcome Joan McCloyd Hemingway, the University of Tennessee W.P. Tom's Distinguished Professor of Law, for an exploration of ways to build a more cooperative, humane, and positive future, as presented in the book Conscious Capitalism liberating the heroic spirit of business, written by John Mackey. John, welcome. Thank you, Bill, and uh, thanks to the Friends of the Library for sponsoring this today and for um, really forcing me to read a book that, as I said to Emily when she asked me to do this program, I've been very excited about reading for a long time. I approached the task today as an opportunity really to review the book, which is something that academics do a lot. Uh, And so what I'm going to share with you today is really my perspectives on the book. Uh, I'm happy to take your questions that deviate from that. And so uh, every book review has a title, right? So my title for this book review is Yes, But... Yes, that's the title. Um, (laughs) And so that would be Yes, comma, but dot, dot. Dot, right? That's pretty much the way it would read on the blogosphere if, if I were going to write this as a book review. Um, really, as Bill's introduction indicates, this book is about uh, how business, often painted in public circles as an evil, can be a greater social good if properly constituted, managed, and operated. The authors, John Mackey and Raj Sisodia, both practice what they preach. I want to start by briefly introducing those two men for those of you who are unfamiliar with them. Mackey's the CEO of Whole Foods, Inc. He's known for having a very strong personality. Mackey's also well-known, actually, for being caught back in 2007 blogging positive information about Whole Foods and negative information about a competitor called Wild Oats, uh, specifically on Yahoo Finance, so in the blogosphere, under a pseudonym. Rahodeb, which is a letter scramble, an anagram of his wife's name, Deborah, a competitor that Whole Foods later acquired. Okay, so he's maligning a company which would tend to, and I'm a securities lawyer by background, depress its stock price, right? And then he goes out and buys it. This is very smart, right? Probably illegal, but very smart. That acquisition created a bunch of antitrust issues, actually, that were settled two years later, and essentially Whole Foods ended up divesting uh, the whole of the wild oats stores and brand that were left at that time. So I mention this as an aside because the book portrays Mackey, and he portrays himself as a co-author, as being extremely positive and um, extremely uh, good in a capital G sense of the word good. Sisodia, I'll give a, a, a briefer introduction. He's somebody like me, sort of. Uh, he's a marketing professor at Babson College. He's also the founder of Conscious Capitalism, Inc., which was formed based on the name of the book, okay? Uh, a firm that organizes business leaders around the four tenets of conscious capitalism that I'm going to relate to you today, uh, the ones that both uh, Mackie and Sisodia share with us in the book. So with that brief introduction of the book, though, and its authors, I want to begin my part of this book sandwiched in session by offering you some background on me uh, and some background on the legal issues that I think relate to the book's premise that are going to be really useful to us in talking about the book uh, and then come back to the book 
uh, at the end. So first about me. Uh, in addition to being a law professor, which I've done for 14 years now, I practiced law for 15 years, securities law, mergers and acquisitions, and corporate law. In Boston, actually, in case you didn't detect that I don't have an East Tennessee accent. Anyway, so law practice for 14 years. Now, law teaching after that, I moved my family to Tennessee to teach at the University of Tennessee College of Law, where we have an entrepreneurial law center, which is the center through which I do my work. Uh, we, as, as teachers, teach, of course. We do scholarship as well, and we do service uh, to the community, the law school, and the university. Um, and really, this is a large part of that, and I welcome the opportunity to involve myself with the community in this way and in so many others. So feel free to contact me if any of that resonates with you. So what about the book's premise and the law, though, as it relates to uh, my background? Well, there are two related aspects of business law that some of you may know about and some of you may not know about that actually frame the public perception about businesses, this perception that they're evil. Okay, And this is what, in the book, Mackey calls the traditional business as opposed to the conscious business, and that's the dichotomy that he draws. Most public companies and companies of any size are, in fact, corporations, okay? And so they're writing about that particular business form. There are other business forms, partnerships, limited partnerships, limited liability partnerships, limited liability companies, which is the largest growing form here in the state of Tennessee and in, um, in the country. But corporations uh, still are the mainstay, and that's where most of the legal rules are, and that, in fact, is the form that's the focus of this book. So the two things in the law that I want to talk about are corporate purpose and fiduciary duty. Okay? They're both things that run through themes in the book, but I don't think are brought out in a way that's as helpful as they could be to understanding whether this book is worth its salt. That's the but part of my title. So I want to briefly unpack both corporate purpose and fiduciary duty for you as a prelude to talking some more about the book. Corporations are creatures of the state. I often say to my students in class, you can't walk down the street and just see a corporation. It's not like a human. It's not like a table. Uh, without law, we would not have the corporation or the partnership, really, or the LLC. They're all, to some extent, creatures of the state. So in specific, when it comes to corporations, without legislative law, without a statute, a law that's adopted by either a state or a federal legislature, a corporation would not exist. Today I want to focus on that law of corporations and specifically starting with this concept of corporate purpose. Uh, corporate law itself, actually, as a, a prelude to that, includes the rules of the road for businesses that are organized as corporations. So if you opened up the statute, you would need to look for corporate law to get the concepts that I'm going to be talking about today, how they're organized, how they're operated, how they're maintained. Some of those rules are immutable rules, rules that you can't change if you're a participant in the business. The state says if you organize your business this way, you really just need to live with these rules. But other rules are called default rules, rules that you can change, rules that you can agree around if you're a participant in the business uh, that exist there in case you fail to agree with the people that you're in the business on. Um, we, we call these participants in a business, by the way, constituents or corporate constituents. So if you hear me refer to that word today in talking about the book, that's what I'm talking about. So under these corporate law statutes, principally the ones uh, that are adopted by state legislatures, corporations are, are organized by filing a chartering document. Here in Tennessee, it's actually called a charter, and you've got to pay a fee. 
Okay, so you file a form and you pay a fee. The chartering document has to meet certain requirements of state law, things like the name of the corporation, the address, uh, information about organizers. Any of you form a corporation that are here in the live audience today? One, okay, two, so you know what I'm talking about. You have to meet all of those requirements. That's an immutable rule, okay? In order to have a corporation, you must file one of those documents. That legal structure of the corporation is defined principally by that chartering document, but also by the state corporate law and by another document that's called the bylaws. That's really what um, forms a corporation. That is, all of these things establish a lot of rules, and the bylaws are much more granular rules than the other two for governing how the corporation operates. Uh, that legal structure creates enforceable rights in people um, and obligations. Those corporate constituents that I talked about basically have to live by those rules of the road. So how does all this fit in with corporate purpose and with the book? Well, in either the charter or by default in the statutory rules, a corporation has to define its purpose. Although purpose statements used to be more targeted to the specific business for which they were written, for example, if you were manufacturing toys, you might say, to manufacture toys. That's our purpose, okay? That kind of corporate purpose has gone by the wayside. So now most corporations operate under a very general sense of purpose, something like the purpose of the corporation is to engage in any lawful act, okay? Now, that's pretty general, right? That's good that it has to be lawful. I think we can all agree on that, but that's pretty general, So this broad statement of purpose is all-inclusive, and it's relatively safe, therefore, for people who are organizing a business to put that in their chartering document. Why? Because almost anything that you do, as long as it complies with law, in fact, anything that you do, as long as it complies with law, complies with that corporate purpose. So you're following those rules of the road, okay? It would be really hard for management of a corporation to conduct activities that violate that purpose and, and land the corporation in court, okay? On the other hand, though, there's a real negative, right? And that is that a broad statement of corporate purpose doesn't really put people on notice, doesn't put management on notice, doesn't put shareholders, the owners of the firm, uh, and other investors, creditors, people who've loaned money to the corporation, uh, customers, employees. It doesn't put them on notice as to really what the core corporate objectives are. You know, a company that makes toys today could make chairs tomorrow or provide massage services tomorrow. I'm hoping to get a massage later, so I guess that's on my mind. Those who interact with the business may, therefore, have wildly divergent views as to what that business is there for. Okay? So I want you to hold that thought for a minute. But obviously that can create some frustration, some dissension, the opportunity for disagreement within the business. So what about fiduciary duty? Well, corporations, like other forms of business, are collections of people, okay? They're not just statutory beings, but they're collections of people. We've all heard, right, since the last presidential campaign that corporations are people. We can talk about that, too, if you want. That's not really a premise I want to put in front of you today. But let's just think about the fact that these corporate constituents are like you and me, human beings with flesh and blood. The larger the firm gets, the less well those people who are involved in the business, those corporate constituents, know each other. And the less well that they know each other, the less they may trust in each other. So why would they trust in other people to manage a business on their behalf? Why would you want to invest your time, your human capital as an employee, or your money as an investor in a corporate firm if you didn't trust the people who were running it? 
right? Well, they might not. I mean, if you might not want to participate in a business if you don't know what it's all about. The law of business associations, though, does help in some regard here. It alone and together with the law of securities regulation supplies rules that encourage the formation of businesses and the formation of capital, the investment of money in those businesses. The rules exist to uh, basically to enable corporate constituents to trust in each other. Uh, So they're incentivized to put their work or their money into the business. Among those rules are standards of conduct for the managers of the firm. The directors and the officers in the corporate form are your managers, and those include this concept of fiduciary duties. Directors and officers are deemed to be fiduciaries like a trustee is of a trust. Not exactly the same, but in a similar way. And what I mean by that is that their actions in those roles as directors and officers are taken on behalf of others and not for themselves. They're supposed to be acting for someone else. So we tell them they're obligated in that role to act loyally, loyally to the people to whom they're serving, in good faith in the best interests of those other people, and also to act in accordance with a certain standard of care in what they do. So, for example, they should make themselves fully informed about all material things, all important things, before they make decisions okay, as managers in the firm. Now, there are questions in this law about to whom those fiduciary duties are owed. Who are officers and directors acting for when they manage the firm? Are they acting for the corporation as a whole, or are they acting for its shareholders? That's a huge debate in the law, bigger than the debate about whether corporations are people. Okay, Um, In a more narrow sense, what courts have done is they've said, look, the duties uh, may be owed directly to the shareholders, or the duties may be owed to the corporation for the primary benefit of the shareholders. So you might ask, where does that leave me if I'm putting my human capital, my labor, into a firm as an employee? Where does that leave me if I'm a member of the community that's affected by that business? Where does that leave me if I'm a consumer or a client or a supplier of that business, right? Um, If the duties are owed and the managers are required to act in the best interests of the shareholders and not some of those other constituents. So... Um, where the court finds that the duties are narrowly directed in that way, it means basically that those other people um, may properly be ignored or at least marginalized, okay, from the standpoint of law. All right, how does all of this relate to the book, right? Well, um, corporate purpose and fiduciary duties are really important to conscious capitalism, but they get barely any treatment in this book. Conscious capitalism, as the book says, uh, establishes certain values and norms for a corporate entity, for a business. Specifically in the book, Mackey and Sisodia, our two co-authors, establish four principles, four what they call tenets of conscious capitalism. Those four tenets are higher purpose, stakeholder integration, conscious leadership, and conscious culture, and management. Okay, four things. What do they mean? Higher purpose for a conscious business, not a traditional business, goes beyond generating profits and shareholder wealth. Four categories of higher purpose are the good, the true, the beautiful, and the heroic. 
Okay, we can go through what those are if you want, but I think you can imagine, right? And these are all capital letters, right? The good, the heroic. Um, their purposes beyond shareholder value and shareholder wealth that serve, obviously, these other interests as well as shareholders. We don't ignore shareholders in their equation, okay? Stakeholder integration, the second tenet. Basically, stakeholders, in their view, are all those people who interact with a business in any way, who are impacted by and who impact a business. So they categorize stakeholders in the book into two different groups, major stakeholders or what they refer to as the inner circle. And those are, somewhat predictably, customers, which are really at the core. Customers and employees are at the core of what they're talking about. Team members, which is what they call employees. Investors suppliers, communities, and the environment. Okay, so that's your inner circle. Then beyond that, the book reaches out to an outer circle of people who, people, that is, entities and individuals, right, who are impacted by and impact the business. Those are competitors, activists, critics, unions, the media, and last, but my view, certainly not least, government. Uh, we need to recognize, in their view, the interdependence of, in particular, those people and entities in the inner circle, um, but really all of these things. The fact that they are all mutually dependent on each other in a good conscious business is really at the heart of the theory that they share in this book. We need to recognize their interdependence, and we need to look for synergies. We need to look for ways in which they mutually benefit each other, not look as the co-authors point out, for trade-offs, which are so easy to find, right? If it's good for shareholders and bad for customers, what do we do, right? That's the kind of thing that they want to explore and that I think they spend a lot of time exploring from a business perspective and not a lot from a legal perspective. Their idea behind this book is that if you integrate stakeholders, you create value, not just allocate it. So instead of taking a pie and just doling out the pieces so that if you give one person two, that leaves fewer for everyone else, what they're talking about is making that pie bigger, okay? Creating a bigger pie by running business differently. Conscious leadership, which is the third tenet, basically relates to whether your leaders in your firm, which they distinguish from managers, leaders are the people who establish values, whether they live their calling, a conscious leader lives their calling. A conscious leader derives joy and positive energy from his or her work. Okay, the kind of person who gets up Monday morning and says, saying, oh, it's Monday, I can't wait for the weekend, gets up and goes to work and says, I'm so excited, I'm jazzed up about hitting the office this morning. And I can tell you that as much as I loved my job as a practicing lawyer for, for 15 years, that when I came here and began to teach, I've had those Monday mornings. So I know now that I'm conscious in the kind of way that conscious leaders are supposed to be. So I, I really understood what they were saying in articulating that value, that tenet. Their fourth tenet in the book is conscious culture and management. This is cheating, right? Because that's two things, culture and management. But they include them in one because they see them as being so interrelated that you can't break them apart. What we're talking about here is that the people who manage the business, who run it, they don't have to be leaders and establish values and principles. Uh, they just have to be the people that are conducting the operations. And their job really is to create, under the conscious capitalism method, a healthy, positive environment that allows team members, those employees, to flourish for the benefit of the consumers, customers, um, or people to whom you're providing services, okay, clients. 
So those are the four tenets. If you build your business on those four tenets, and they unpack all of them, several of them in multiple chapters in the book, uh, using a lot of examples, companies that you know and love, companies that, that my family works for. My daughter works for Starbucks. Starbucks is mentioned throughout the book. I shop a lot at Trader Joe's now that we have a Trader Joe's here in Knoxville. And uh, Trader Joe's is mentioned Nordstrom. We don't have one here, but I shop online. Lots of businesses that you know are represented in the book, including, of course, Whole Foods. And I guess if I had one complaint about that in the book um, by way of a review, and this is very parenthetical, there's a lot of about Whole Foods in the book. And I worry as an academic that by basing an entire theory of operating a business principally on one model. Although they have studied others, their examples are you know, overwhelmingly from Whole Foods, that uh, the theory may not hold up as well as they want it to because a unitary example is never as good as, uh, as a sample that's scientifically chosen and explored. So that's very parenthetical. So all of this sounds really good, right? I mean, I'm ready to go out and start a business that does this. These four tenets, I mean, how can you disagree with those four tenets? They all sound very positive. Um, and I don't know about you all, but when I go to um, Trader Joe's, the employees there are happy. I mean, the last time that I was in there, I went and bought almond milk for the first time. And I picked a particular kind of vanilla-flavored one because that's what I'd been doing with soy milk. And, and the guy said, oh, have you tried the non-vanilla one? Because I actually like that one better. And I've tried both, and here's what I think they're good for. And you know, I was like, wow. So he sold me. I, I bought The next time I went, I bought the other one. So you know, I went back just to buy the other almond milk. Um, that's, that's good, right? That's good for business. That's good for generating profit. That's good for generating shareholder wealth. That's good for, I mean, he probably felt good because I sort of endorsed him and said, yeah, I'm going to come back and do that next time. Thanks so much for that recommendation. And he was happy as a clam. And I'm quite confident that per hour he has paid significantly less than I am. Um, so uh, it's not about the money. It was about something else in that job that was making that guy happy and, and promote the business of the firm. What about the linkage between corporate purpose and these things? There's some obvious linkages, right? You may have noticed that the first one, higher purpose, has that same word in it. Corporate purpose, higher purpose. Um, very interesting sort of, for me, focus between this broad purpose, which could be used to hire planes, okay? Um, and the tension of that being that people don't know that that's what it's being used for. So when a court looks at a business and they look at this broad general purpose, how do they interpret things like how the fiduciary duties are supposed to be exercised? How do they interpret whether what the business is doing every day is good? And so in this environment where broader purpose operates, courts have done some weird things, which I think is what uh, they're reacting to to some extent in the book and, as I said, creates this public perception. Let me give you two examples. You may not know this, but when the Ford Motor Company first was put into existence, uh, in the early 20th century, one of the things that they did was they had um, some investors and uh, participants in the management of the business called um, the Dodge Brothers. Ring a bell? Later became competitors, right, of the Ford Motor Company. And there's some nice histories out there for those of you who like histories of businesses like I do um, that have been written on this. But there's a very famous case called Dodge versus Ford Motor Company uh, in which the Dodge Brothers actually sued the firm, sued uh, Ford, uh, for withholding dividends from shareholders. Okay, for not paying shareholders dividends. Now, why was the firm withholding dividends from shareholders? Now, they were paying some. They just weren't paying enough, according to the Dodge brothers. Well, they wanted to keep prices down uh, and actually, in the coming year, reduce prices of the Ford cars. Again, this is very early on. And expand their business by buying new equipment, creating new factory floors, and, yes, hiring more employees. Okay? Uh, now, Ford, like Mackey, had a really strong personality. 
Uh, and the Dodge brothers and Ford parted ways, I think, on personality more than just about anything else. Um, and that's pretty apparent from the judges uh, reading in the case. But essentially what the court did in that case is it forced the payment of dividends to the shareholders. So people in law actually hold this case up as a case that triumphs in a trade-off kind of way that Mackey and Sisodia don't like, right? The triumph of the shareholders over employees, the community, consumers who are buying those cars, because we like low prices, right? I mean, I'm into low prices as long as the quality is there. And the quality was there. They were maintaining the quality of the cars while keeping prices low to sell more. They could always have a book of business. It was sort of like when the Prius came out, right? Uh, They couldn't make the cars fast enough uh, for people to buy them. Anyway, what the case says specifically that people point to is, and I'm going to read a quote for you here, it is not within the lawful powers of a board of directors to shape and conduct the affairs of a corporation for merely incidental benefit of shareholders and for the primary purpose of benefiting others. And no one will contend that if the allowed purpose of the defendant directors was to sacrifice the interest of the shareholders, it would not be the duty of the courts to interfere. So the courts don't get this, okay, is my point, when it comes to corporate purpose and fiduciary duty. They don't get this, okay? Now that's an old case, okay? That's 1919. Let's move a little into the future. I'll give you another example. Uh, Revlon, Inc. versus McAndrew and Forbes. This is a case from 1986. Okay, so still not really modern, but this law is still good in both cases, okay? Um, That's a case where the firm, McAndrews and Forbes, was making an offer for a company, and the concept was there were multiple trading offers in a public company. In the case of Revlon, it was financial entity Revlon and a number of others who were vying for the same company. And so the question was, how does the board decide, right, as among these different potential acquirers in uh, what was uh, some negotiated, some sort of not negotiated takeover situation? These offers came in, obviously, on different terms, at different prices, different forms of consideration were going to be given in the business. Some were, were giving out cash only. Some were giving out cash and debt instruments, like a promissory note where you get paid later. You know, so the, the offers were different, and the board had to juggle them. And the board chose one, and that choice was challenged by Revlon in this case because they were not the winning bidder. So what the court said here, and again I'm going to quote, is a board, now the board manages the corporation, okay, a board may have regard for various constituencies in discharging its responsibilities, provided there are rationally related benefits accruing to the stockholders. However, such concern for non-stockholder interests is inappropriate when an auction among active bidders is in progress and the object no longer is to protect or maintain the corporate enterprise, but to sell it to the highest bidder. This provides specifically for shareholder wealth maximization in a takeover. The person with the highest value offer wins for the shareholders. But what about the employees? And what about the customers? What about those of us who are buying goods from one of these firms or taking services? These cases really stand for the proposition that at least under certain circumstances, the two that I've articulated here in the two jurisdictions where those cases came down, shareholders come first. Fiduciary duties are owed to shareholders and not to stakeholders in this context where broad corporate purpose operates. Mackey and Sisodia, the co-authors of Conscious Capitalism, do acknowledge this when they say in the book that the principle of profit maximization became codified into corporate law as the de facto definition of fiduciary responsibility. They note that, okay? 
That's one sentence in the book. Now, there are a few other pages on which this is brought up as well, but really it doesn't get enough attention. What would you do if you were on the board of directors of a firm and knew that your fiduciary duty that a court was going to enforce publicly could be on the front page of the Knoxville News Sentinel, right, if it's a local business? Um, You know, you could be dragged into court if you don't act in the best interest of shareholders. How does this theory that talks about integrating stakeholders, right, how does this theory that talks about higher corporate purpose wash when you, as a director of a firm or an officer, are facing a potential adverse judicial decision in your firm, right? A court coming down and saying you're not operating by the rules that the statute sets forth for you and that case law interpreting the statutes gives to us. So let's imagine a different world for a minute. What if a corporation stakes out a claim on the four principles, the four tenets of conscious capitalism that are laid out in this book, higher purpose, stakeholder integration, conscious leadership, and conscious management and culture. What if they do that specifically by writing it into their chartering document in a corporate purpose provision, saying the corporation wants to live by these four things? And what if courts then, in light of that, interpreted the fiduciary duties of directors and officers in the firm more broadly, consistent with those four tenets of conscious capitalism? What if courts found that management owed the duties to the corporation more broadly for the benefit of multiple stakeholders? Would this necessarily be a positive development, one that encourages business, one that encourages capital formation? The answer is, and this is frequently the answer in my law school classroom, it depends. Right? It depends. So I want to invite you to think about that in light of the book. I want to invite you to read the book. The bottom line for me is that this book outlines a really positive way of conducting business, but it gives too short shrift to the role of law in shaping the way that managers can or must act in the corporate form. So my view is maybe they should write a second volume that covers that. Right, make some more money off the bookshelves, and maybe they want a co-author on that. I don't know. So with that, I will leave it to your questions. I don't know exactly what a B corporation, does that have anything to do with this? I see some ads in some liberal-leaning magazines that such and such company is this other kind of corporation that... Yes, so good. Thank you so much for asking that question. Have any of the rest of you heard about B Corps or um, benefit corporations? B Corp, and I'm going to make a distinction here because I am a lawyer and have to do this, right? A B Corp is a corporation organized under those laws of the state that I talked about before, just regular old for-profit corporate laws that is certified by a national entity, a nonprofit that certifies companies who meet certain objectives. They would put those objectives in these purpose clauses. So I appreciate you raising that. It connects directly to what I was saying in the talk. Those purposes, though, have to be to run the firm for social and environmental good broadly. So it, in a funny sense, restricts the purpose in a way that is more narrow than what these folks would want you to restrict it to. 
It's a way of recognizing the environment and society in the corporate form. Uh, firms like Patagonia, uh, for example, have chosen to become B Corps um, because that's what they do. They serve the environment and society, and they look at broader stakeholder interests. So there is a connection there. Um, I have a personal view about that uh, and about benefit corporations, which, by the way, uh, we've looked at here in Tennessee, and I do serve, full disclosure, on the executive committee of the Tennessee Bar Association business law section, which is usually the group that promotes legislation in Tennessee or has to review all business legislation in Tennessee. Um, and, uh, and in that group, we've looked at that legislation. We believe, and this also ties in with my bottom line, that the for-profit corporate laws in the state can already be used to do what benefit corporations do. Uh, and we would promote that, really, in, in lieu of putting a new statutory law. And I already articulated for you, we have a statute on, on partnerships, limited partnerships, limited liability partnerships, same statute but slightly different rules, limited liability companies, for-profit corporations, banking corporations. We've got, I mean, I could be in business for years just writing about those statutes, right? So add one more, and I feel like at some point, if the, the difference is very minimal, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. There are people, though, in my end of the business who say that by B Corp certification uh, or by forming a benefit corp for your business that serves, again, these broader uh, social and environmental concerns, and each state is adopting a slightly different version of that, um, that by doing that, uh, you're signaling to the public in some meaningful way just by having that designation in your corporate charter that you are a business that looks out for other things that you can't just do by putting it in a charter. But for me... You know, I knew Patagonia was a doing good company without them needing that certification. I knew Starbucks was and Whole Foods was and, and you know, the businesses they mentioned in the book for the most part, I knew that they were both doing well and doing good um, in, a, in a broader sense and, and distinctly within each one. I think the beauty of this book in that regard as opposed to these certification systems and, and corporate forms which tend to focus more narrowly is that this could be adopted by any firm, nonprofit, for-profit, as just a way of conducting business successfully. Um, I just worry about the legal overlay not matching with the operational ideas that they have in here. I'd be interested to know who certifies the corporations. Yes, it's a nonprofit firm that came up with this themselves. It's called, what is it called? Uh, it just ran out of my head. If you Google or Bing or whatever your search engine is, uh, B Corp or Benefit Corp, you will get their website. And then just scroll to the bottom, and they have their name right at the bottom of the website. Uh, and here's my objection to that. I'm sort of glad you asked about it. Uh, these Benefit Corporation statutes, they've also sponsored. And my fear is that, uh, that they themselves are not a conscious capital business, um, that they are looking to promote themselves by promoting this certification system. They're looking to promote themselves by promoting these statutes. The statutes have in them uh, the fact that the purpose has to be certified by them within the statutory framework as well. So they've built themselves into these models. They lobby for them. I'm a little suspicious of lobbyists. I'm, I'll be honest with you. I dated the son of one once, and maybe that turned me the wrong way. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but I've also seen the way they operate in some contexts where, you know, money's coming from outside the state that, you know, uh, that um, I'm not real happy about being spent to, to force an issue on us. And I feel the same way about this organization. I'm not a fan. Um, I'm a fan of what they're trying to do, their purpose, but not necessarily their methods. B oh, B-Lab. That's it. It's called B-Lab. Thank you. We're all familiar with the 
I call them creative companies. Big new idea that starts out something and tend to be very egalitarian, uh, conscious, if you will, in their capitalistic motives. Uh, like Amazon, Starbucks, Apple, Google, but alas, they all outgrow it and they become more complex and a little less egalitarian in their purpose. What, what do you think is the potential of that kind of organization to drive positive change toward more conscious capitalism? And I'm thinking of companies like Elon Musk and his SpaceX, which now launches satellites for the U.S. government, Tesla Motors, which is reinventing the manufacture of automobiles. What do you foresee their impact being in this whole it's a really good question. Um, people can disagree about the extent to which the larger, more established firms like Starbucks and Amazon have um, have turned themselves into more traditional businesses. Um, I think I'm with you that they have gone that way, although they still do have um, a lot of the – they still abide by the tenets. They are somewhat of a hybrid at this point. And, and I, I guess I would attribute some of that to the law, to this government piece that gets marginalized and thrown in at the end, um, to be honest with you. Not all of it, but I think at some point uh, your board becomes overrun by people who are on other boards who are doing that in other organizations and – no matter how well you choose um, in certain search situations. Notice that, that all those companies have done a lot of acquisitions and divestitures, right? That second case, that Revlon case, comes up in that context. It really forces people's feet to the fire legally. And if I were in a boardroom, as I used to be, I would have to advise them what their fiduciary duties were in light of the corporate purpose of the firm. Now, what, what about these, these emergent firms? And, you know, does Tesla want to become a Starbucks? Uh, or can they stay small and can they continue to operate small? Um, you can. It takes a lot of guts. It takes getting up every morning and saying, I'm not going to buy that other firm. Not being a Facebook, right, and buying every company, you know, at whatever valuation, you know, uh, along the way, um, and deciding that you're going to serve the constituencies in your own way. I just think that there are a lot of managers who can't do that at some point or another. We're all, you know, I'm going to say this in a way that I, and I don't mean it to be crass, but we are all, to some extent, wealth maximizers. You know, that's the traditional neoclassical economic way of looking at things. The question is, what's wealth, though? For some people, wealth is pecuniary gain, financial gain, dollars in their pocket, right? For some people, altruism, positive emotional energy play a role. They're things that economists have a tough time measuring. But emotional satisfaction, happiness are things that, that really economists have started looking at. There are people who invest money in firms not because they're going to make money back, but because they're going to make maybe a little bit of money back and make themselves feel really good. I've done a lot of work in crowdfunding recently, and crowdfunding started off with that in mind and, and crisscrosses into conscious capitalism and social capitalism and environmental capitalism, which are pieces of the puzzle. Um, and, uh, and I saw people put money into firms where they had no objective of making back that $10 that they put in. They wanted to see the business succeed. They, they wanted maybe a little teeny tiny check, you know, the, the first year of their operations, 10 cents on the dollar, you know, and uh, their product or tickets to their concert or tickets to the first run of the movie or, you know, whatever it was that was being promoted. But to stay that small um, requires a lot of guts because there's money out there to be made. And like Ford, you could say, well, I want to employ more people. If I want to employ more people, I need more money to employ them. That means either raising the price of my product or not paying my investors, right? 
um, those trade-offs are hard to make. And I use the word trade-off there advisedly. I don't think you can avoid trade-offs. This concept that you can always operate under synergies, it's a little too um, pat for me, and it's a little too uh, rosy, you know, rose-colored glasses for me. I think that uh, law notwithstanding, it's very hard to, uh, when there's pretty clearly a negative effect on one constituent in the firm, uh, make a decision that detriments that constituency. But you got to do it sometimes for the greater good of the whole. So there, are, there are in every synergistic decision you make, there are trade-offs involved. I guess is what I would say, um, and it's just hard to make that trade-off when somebody really wants to buy you out. Ben and Jerry's, right? Here's another classic example of what you're talking about. Ben and Jerry's, and I've been up to their original store. I used to live up in New England, and uh, been up to their original store up in Vermont. Uh, sold out. You know, to a larger firm. Hershey's uh, has been through many takeover wars in the last 10 years. Um, uh, also could be deemed to be a conscious capitalism firm in its original incarnation. So, yeah, there are a lot of them that evolve. Can Tesla, you know, stick to its guns? I mean, I, your guess is probably as good as mine, but I do think it takes, it takes management's guts. It takes more than a conscious leader and a conscious management it takes swallowing hard and not knowing where your next paycheck comes from and not knowing where the next paycheck of some of your employees comes from sometimes. You're playing with fire. If you raise those prices of your products too high, the, your market will no longer be with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm concerned about the, the messing with the ballots. Many corporations are, are giving funds towards ballot measures or, or towards candidates. Um, and I think acting as citizens when they're not really citizens, they're you, you used another term, uh, something of the state. A creature, a creature of the creature state. Of the state mm-hmm. right? what, what's the fiduciary duty to remain involved in that level of politics, in mm. that level of lobbying uh, um, ballot measures and supporting certain sides of ballot measures on a corporate side? Yeah, this is, this is a really, really important question, one that we should do a whole other book day on this because it's a really – I'll make that suggestion to Emily. She's nodding at me. Um, uh, because, uh, because really that, this is a, a huge thing in the Hobby Lobby case, which is currently before the Supreme Court, Citizens United, a number of years ago. You know, how do, how do the corporate board uh, exercising its fiduciary duty – to just put the question maybe slightly differently and, again, consistent with corporate purpose, uh, determine whether to give to charities, whether to give to political campaigns, whether to do things that are not at the core of their operations. And there's a little bit of a gamble every time that they do. And they're ga- whose money are they gambling with? Uh, shareholders' money, uh, employees' money, you know, those other constituents' money. So, um, but that's part of community. I think they would say that's part of community. Um, and the question is, when does it get to be too much? You know, the Supreme Court has found that corporations are, to this extent, citizens. It was a bit of a surprise for some of us in the law that they found that, that corporations – and this is – I know this affronts a lot of people, but corporations are legal people. They are in various statutes. Uh, they're charged with doing things. They have responsibilities. Uh, but they're not flesh and blood like you and me. And so, you know, when they exercise religious rights, when they exercise political rights, give to political campaigns, they're, and they're also multinational. And in some cases, they're multinational. In some cases, they're right in your backyard, right? And they're, they're small. They, they may even be LLCs that are formed for the purpose of conducting political activity, more, more or less. You know, that their main job is as a, a foundation. Uh, as a nonprofit, maybe to give to things. So um, there, you know, I think the the question is not as big. But to what extent do you you play Russian roulette with shareholder money, employee money, the money of of other folks, and can you get away with that being a conscious capitalist? Um, I would have a tough time on a board doing a lot of that. You know, I really would. 
but there are firms that do this politically to gain customers, that do this to gain investors, the same way that people contribute to political campaigns in ways that some of us might find offensive who are flesh-and-blood humans to get benefits out of them. You know, one of the big things for us lawyers in Tennessee in this regard has been uh, the election of state judges. Um, Please, please, please go out and vote for our Supreme Court judges who are really good judges. Um, They're being impacted by a lot of funding from outside the state right now in a negative way, and I that's as offensive to me as corporations being affected the same way, and, and there's no real answer to the question. Courts will review these things, though. Take it into the court. Make the argument, like the Dodge versus Ford argument, that there's a breach of fiduciary duties here, that the fiduciary duties are owed to the corporation, not just to its shareholders. Or if they're owed to the shareholders and they're violating that, hold their feet to the fire. There are, though, firms, you know, small family firms. Um, you know, I'm thinking the whole Chick-fil-A controversy was a big deal, right, you know, about a year ago run by family mostly and, uh, and owned in part by a family foundation that, that was spending some of the money for political things that, that people both agreed and disagreed with in the state of Georgia, which is where that firm's organized, and, and across the country and really internationally. Um, and, uh, and yet that was part of what they were doing. They realized they were losing some customers. They bagged down a little bit on things and changed the way that they did business. But who's going to sue them? The family's not going to sue them. It's the family's values, Right and and uh, not Hobby Lobby, but the other case that was brought with Hobby Lobby also is a family-owned firm. We're talking about the same form, the same legal form being used for everything from a public company all the way on down to you know Chick Fil A, um, or even a smaller firm. They're going to construe fiduciary duty differently in those contexts. And I think the Supreme Court is going to look at the corporation as I hope they're going to look at the corporation differently in different contexts based on the policies underlying what they're looking at if it's religious preference, if it's political preference, you know, what is it that the corporation's doing that is is offensive to some shareholder who's suing or some other constituent who's suing? So I don't have a real good answer to your question because I think it's flexible based on the type of contribution that's at issue, the number of times that it's done, the corporation that's doing it and what their corporate purpose is, um, and how fiduciary duty will be looked at in that context. But it's, it's at the nub of a very, very serious political and legal issue right now. I was impressed with the idea that they were going to seek the good. Most of the time when business that I've been in, it's a choice between two goods. It's not a choice between the bad and the good. Nobody chooses the bad deliberately. You always choose what you think is going to work best in the situation. It may hurt some people. It may benefit others. You don't make that choice because it benefits one and hurts the other. You have to look at what purpose does it serve to make that decision. I'm in total agreement with you. Let me, let me just read to you quickly um, from page 59 in the book on the four categories of great purposes where they talk about the good as one of its purposes. Um, they say that the good means service to others, dash, 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 improving health, education, communication, and quality of life. I think all of us would make decisions that do that. That's what I meant by, you know, it's, it's so good. This is my yes but. You, you've, you've brought me right back to my title. Of course, maybe even, but, Right? Uh, I agree with a lot of the stuff that they say in here, but they, they, they skim over law. They skim over some definitional things like what is the good and when the good faces against the good. They have some, some part of, of the book that they, they do deal with that, but they still they don't give you a recipe for decision-making because there is none. No, there is none. Well, thank you. You've been a very generous audience, and I appreciate you.
Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.